God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of this Torah, this teaching, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is known to us specifically by all of these personal relationships, won't let me get away with such a cop-out. God doesn't desire a mediated relationship with any of you. God can and does speak and work through others in your life. But God also seeks to speak and work through your life. And in this covenant and through Christ, God makes the promise to be faithful and to uphold each and every one of you. Not just through a representative, not just through the person who's seated next to you, not just somebody in the far reaches of your past. God makes this covenant in Christ with you and you personally. disappointed. I um, didn't get the verses early enough. Um, and so it's not actually all of 2 through 29. I'm going to be reading um, uh, kind of a selection within that. But hear the word of the Lord this morning. You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. So that you may, so that you may enter into the sword covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today. That he may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I will walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to a sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Then people will say it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And he went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known, and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against the, this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. The word of the Lord. Um, Josh, would you be able to, I'm not sure, are these monitors going? Uh, can you cut them? I, I, for whatever reason, it always sounds a little bit like I'm ringing in my ear. I'm not sure if that'll affect it at all. Um, but um, growing up, one of the phrases that I think I heard the most was, um, at least in terms of defining what it means to be a Christian, was to have a personal relationship with Christ. 
you have to remember that I came of age. Um, I grew up in the era of Jesus is my homie branded apparel. Um, so it was all the rage at that time to talk about personal relationship, Jesus being close by. I, I think it still has some currency today. I'm not sure. Maybe what I hear people more oftentimes use now is I'm a follower of Jesus, but you'll still kind of hear this language to have a personal relationship with Christ. Strictly speaking, that phrase is found exactly nowhere in scripture, but, but it is trying to take into language that's familiar to all of us today, contemporary language for us, what the new covenant that Christ establishes with us means. To try to have this personal relationship to know that God, Jesus Christ, the one he calls Father, and their shared spirit. But then if you've ever heard this description, I might ask you this morning, whom in your life would you describe having a personal relationship with? If it were up to you, how would you define having a personal relationship? What would be the difference between a personal relationship and something that's other than that? Joel, this one was for you, although you were making fun of my dated references here to Yosemite. I know that it's not a personal relationship if at any point in that relationship I have to click that I agree or accept these terms. It's an impersonal relationship between me and one of Apple's 5,000 software license agreements. So, more seriously, um, I think all personal relationships probably have several characteristics that they share. At the very least, I would assume that if it were a personal relationship between you and somebody else, you at least know their name. You probably know a little bit more than that, maybe a little bit about their family, their background, their experiences, their interests. But knowledge alone in this case isn't sufficient, right? You could get all the information about me from my forthcoming autobiography, if I actually had one, and not actually still have a personal relationship with me. Nor would necessarily being in their presence. I'm in the presence of a lot of people in the grocery checkout line when I'm going through there, and yet none of them would I say I have a personal relationship with them. Maybe even right now, not, not that I'm suggesting anything, there are people that you're in the presence of in this room that you would not describe having a personal relationship with. No, I think that for me at least, when I think about what it is that characterizes having a personal relationship, I might describe it as something like when the knowledge or the presence of another begins to affect or change you, when in some way how you live, what you do, and who you are is different because of that person. Um, a kind of trite example, this is actually uh, Elvis impersonator here. But if you've ever saw somebody who started spending time with somebody that you're really familiar with, maybe they didn't before, and they start spending a lot of time together, and they pick up, it's a particular phrase or a facial expression, and you know it, and you see it, and you're like, that's just exactly like how so-and-so does their thing. And you can kind of see there's this way that when we spend time with each other, when we know one another, there's kind of this exchange, perhaps of facial expressions, phrases, but also of qualities of interests, habits, and loyalties. For those of you that have been in healthy personal relationships, 
whether it's in marriage or with parents or siblings, lifelong friends, you'd probably all tell me that it's not easy, it's not effortless. But if it's at least been somewhat reciprocal, an understanding and affection and care of each other, you would tell me that the relationship has been worth it and it's enriched your life in a way that it would be hard to imagine your life apart from that relationship. Or if I could put it the reverse way, if you can imagine me uh, sitting alone in a room with myself all the time and how mentally, emotionally, and bodily deprived I would be, adding personal relationships to my life in that case is not a subtraction from its fullness because the sum of it is greater than its parts. And yet, nevertheless, all of you could tell me this morning that with personal relationships, there are sometimes challenges. We're made for them. There are great benefits to them. But people aren't perfect. Sometimes they get selfish. They insult us. They injure us. They forget us. They betray us. They drive their cars through our houses when they're upset. They might suffer, they might leave, and people die. They affect our, wi- our lives in ways that not only bring us gladness and joy, but also sometimes sadness and hurt. And I think that in a world where so oftentimes the sadness and hurt seems overwhelming, not just in our lives, but in everybody else's lives, there is this temptation to close ourselves off from actually having personal relationships with people. Maybe I only want to click that button that says accept these conditions. To be protected from the costs or the risks that we run by being close to others in a world of sin. Because if it's going to, in the end, just be as frustrating or disappointing, then what's the purpose of doing it in the first place? And I think being so practiced sometimes at closing ourselves off from other relationships around us, we end up also being practiced in keeping a good distance between us and God. And as a corrective, I think, to this temptation this morning, we have Deuteronomy 29, because all of our personal relationships can and truly should begin with God first. You know, these last few months, Pastor Jeff has highlighted the representation of the Torah, the law or the teaching that Moses gives to Israel on the plains of Moab at the threshold of the promised land. It's called the teaching or the law because it teaches Israel the most important thing that any human being can know, how then we ought to live. And it insists in the Torah that God is first in loving and in creating us and in rescuing and in redeeming us. It's a gift that fills us with the capacity for praise, love, understanding, and thanksgiving. And as Israel seeks to follow its instructions, they offer their whole lives back to God without reservation. As they live in that hope, that selflessness, and that freedom, they are then filled with yet ever greater depths of God's life and God's love. But part of the reason that Deuteronomy is so long is that it's not actually an easy task to do this. It requires a total transformation from how the world thinks and how the world lives. And so what the Torah does is it breaks down all of our life into smaller bits, surveying every dimension of life individually from 
small claim settlements, raising children, grocery store trips, business transactions, employment, holiday gatherings, relocation, and it gives examples in each of those cases of what it looks like to live and to witness to the glory and to the goodness of God in their time and in their context. For us today, then, this teaching that Moses gives to Israel is perfected by Christ, who is the full revelation not only of who God is, but who we should be in light of that. We no longer refer to the law today because Christ is the new Adam. Humanity as it should be in the new Moses, the one who teaches us the way to live. Last week, if you remember, we spoke a little bit about how even right now, in a world of sin, it makes a difference to follow, it makes a difference in whether we pursue or follow God's way or our own way. And I hope that for many of you whom I know have decided to leave the world of sin behind and make a commitment to go forward in Christ, those words were encouraging. To be able to know that we experience here and now Christ's joy, peace, and thanksgiving. The word that was given last week is that it's never too late to come to God to accept and to receive that gift of grace and love, but it's also never too early. The moment is also here and now. For this morning, then, Moses kind of announces in the law this personal quality of the covenant that all the people of Israel are being called into. They are, within our everyday language, being called to have a personal relationship with their God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 29, it, God's nearness is uncomfortably close. It may not seem self-evident from reading these verses from our perspective today, but this covenant in many ways is kind of unusual. Let me give you an example. This is actually a little bit more politically relevant than I thought it was until after I'd done it, but I promise it doesn't have anything to do. My question, there's something called the North American Free Trade Agreement. The important thing is that it's a trade agreement that you and I are all kind of yoked into here, being citizens of the United States. My question to you, this having been in effect, it's actually still in effect for a little longer, and then there are some changes to it. In 1994, when NAFTA went into effect, who here, raise your hand, if you were one of the signatories, if you were one of the people who signed it to ratify it? Raise your hand, don't be shy. If you were the ones that signed this agreement here, right? I mean, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that with these kinds of agreements, treaties, you could call them covenants, that would be kind of archaic for this sort of thing, but it's the same idea. They're all brokered in theory for us, but we're not necessarily the main and principal players in that room when they're being ratified and agreed upon. You have several powerful parties who come together and they're authorized to make the agreement and they then oversee and carry out the terms and the consequences on behalf of the rest of us, right? NAFTA has been ratified through the elected officials, through our representation, and then the consequences are mediated back to us by the government. So while we hope our voice is heard, we are still at some remove, right? We're several degrees removed from all that stuff about NAFTA and all the changes. My single voice makes little difference in the grand scheme as to whether or not that happens. But as you think about this then, I want you to go back to Deuteronomy 29 here. 
Notice that here nobody sits at several degrees of separation from this covenant, from this agreement that's being brokered here. We see all the usual people at the beginning, the heads of the tribes, your elders and your officers, right? This is the kind of people, the dignitaries that you would expect to be at this kind of meeting. But it keeps going. The men of Israel, your little ones, your children, your wives, the women, the sojourner, the foreigner who's there, the one who even chops your wood and the one who draws your water, people that you wouldn't even think, the kind of people that sort of disappear in the background, especially in the ancient world, all of these people are called together at this point to be a part of this covenant. And in fact, it doesn't even end there. It is not with you alone that I am making this word covenant, but with whoever is standing here today with excuse me, with whoever is standing here today, whether the person just kind of stumbled in and made a wrong turn at the mountain of Sinai or something and ended up with Israel. And not even just with who's here today, but also with whoever is not here today. If you took a sick day, you're still included in this. And importantly, partly what that's referring to is that even if you were born after this initial covenant, you're still going to actually be a part of this covenant. What, is, what Moses will clarify later, Pastor Jeff might go over, is that every seven years, all of Israel will have together again during the festival of booths. They'll do the exact same reading of this covenant, and they'll ratify it. Because in the ancient world, in the ancient world, you didn't have documents were, of course, pretty expensive. Uh, and handwriting was something that was very uncommon. You had to be very learned. So the way of doing that, and Alicia's made good point. Oh, Alicia isn't here this morning. Um, but in the Genesis class, she's spoken a little bit about this. The way that you kind of signed your name next to a covenant happened through sacrifice, right? And so you'd sacrifice animals, and then you'd participate in those animals. Animals, you can see with like Abraham, he sort of divides them at that point, and then you walk through them, and there's kind of that implication that if you aren't faithful to that covenant, this is your signature, may it be so also to you. Um, but Israel, you sacrifice the animal, and then you eat it, and again, everybody here in Israel is all inv invited to, so to speak, sign their name next to this covenant and say, it's upon me to make sure that this covenant is carried out. Oh, wait, sorry, going backwards here. Now, probably for some of us, this sounds already somewhat familiar, a foreshadowing of the good news that Christ himself brings, right? This is the God who knows us by name, who calls us when we are yet under the fig tree, not just by a generic or some kind of general term, the God who is able to say, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, the God who rejoices over finding the one lost sinner, the God who rejoices over the return of the prodigal son, God shows throughout the whole history of Israel to be this God of personal relation and connection. But all along in this story, the world and the sinfulness within us retreats from that personal character to a covenant or to a relationship with God. And it's a little bit different, right, than other personal relationships, because unlike other people with God, there's no risk, at least on God's part, of a lack of love or some lack of understanding or some lack of care or um, commitment or kindness or wisdom souring our relationship. God is faithful and true and good to us always. But 
remember what I said earlier about one of the essential qualities of a personal relationship, at least that I'd like to bring to you today, about how the presence and the knowledge of another changes or affects us. And on the one hand, while we don't risk being hurt or abandoned by God, and we're able to personally experience God's holiness, God's goodness and love, even in the darkness of the world, no sooner can we be in God's midst, right? No sooner can God dispel the darkness of our lives than God's same holy love begins to banish the sin within us that tightly grasps us. You know, in contrast to the world, a personal relationship with God doesn't risk the possibility of being hurt through another's sin because God does not. Instead, why we instinctively retreat from it is because it confronts us with the sin within ourselves. The sin that has whispered in our ear and convinced us that it's not sin, the sin that has convinced us that it's not that big of a deal if we hold on to it, the sin that's convinced us that we need to hold on to it, to protect ourselves from others who would railroad us or walk all over us or take advantage of us. In truth, we may not want to be like the world, but when we look at the moral aspirations of the law and when we look to Christ, who actually forgives those who have wronged him and he prays for those who have insulted and spat on him, we are convinced that in the real world, nobody can actually expect you to live with that kind of unrelenting mercy, grace, forgiveness anyway. But if you have a personal relationship with God, then all bets are off. People understood as much 3,000 years ago as today that to avoid being changed into such an uncompromising holiness, to avoid losing the personal boundary of comfort, of safety, and self-protection that sin cleverly promises us, you have to keep God at least at some bit of a remove. Get too close to God and you might be changed too much and completely lose yourself. A personal relationship is all well and good, but for somebody else, maybe Rosalie wants a personal relationship with God, or perhaps Melinda does, or perhaps Bonnie does, but I certainly don't want to get too close. Maybe any one of them can deal with the force and the terror of God's holiness, God's power, God's glory, and protect me from then the change that it would wreck in my heart and my life. And of course, if I really need to go to God, if I need to ask God something, I can go to Rosalie or I can go to Melinda or I can go to Bonnie. And I can tell them, here, can you tell God this thing for me, a relationship by mediation? And I can justify my reluctance by saying that closeness to God must be something only a few select people can handle. But the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of this Torah, this teaching, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is known to us specifically by all of these personal relationships, won't let me get away with such a cop-out. God doesn't desire a mediated relationship with any of you. God can and does speak and work through others in your life. But God also seeks to speak and work through your life. And in this covenant and through Christ, God makes the promise to be faithful and to uphold each and every one of you, not just through a representative, 
not just through the person who's seated next to you, not just somebody in the far reaches of your past. God makes this covenant in Christ with you and you personally. You here make all the difference. God brings you to him so that you personally can experience his faithfulness, the dignity to which he loves you with, the value that you have, the delight and the joy that God is now and eternally. But to remain there in that personal relationship with God any more than just a passing moment, you will likewise be confronted again and again and again with any sin that clings to you or to which you cling. It's just what it means to be changed, to be affected, to have a personal relationship with perfect love and goodness. And when given the choice, the world which is also us, preferred so greatly the imagined safety of those coping defense mechanisms, our own sin, to deal with the world's brokenness, that it chose to crucify and kill its savior rather than the sin that held it captive. This morning, these scriptures, Deuteronomy, Philippians, John's gospel, invite us to come to the table to the God who knows and is present with us. We call sharing in this table by several different names. Communion is one of them. Communion is impossible without a personal relationship and encounter. Communion is more than just a bringing together of several things into one, a union. A team of sports players or politicians can be, can be united. But communion signifies this full, this abiding, this intimacy of understanding of purpose and being. We are invited to come to this table not in the hope of having somebody mediate for us the grace of God or the hope of experiencing holiness by association or the hope that one day, perhaps on our one millionth repeat customer, the confetti will drop from the ceiling and we'll get the grand prize that Christ promises. We come here to this table today because we have been invited to God's, into God's presence, his life, his strength, his power, and his peace. It's not that God ever withholds these things from us. God has already made and been faithful to this promise in Christ now and forever. But we in the sin within us and our world often withholds us back from God in that personal connection and relationship. And what Israel and Paul and Jesus show us this morning is that our preparation, our progress in this relationship is not one that we accomplish on our own. The good news is that we don't change God in having that kind of relationship. God is one and the same always, but God does change us. And our response is this posture of reception, a willingness and a prayer to have God do that work in us, even when it's costly, and maybe especially when it's difficult. Our response here in this moment as we prepare to come to this table is the honesty to confess the power, the authority, and the purposes of God and let go of our own way, instead declaring our allegiance and our loyalty to whatever God works in us and in our world from this moment forward. Our response here is to eat and to drink at this table, which realizes that everything that we have 
and everything that we are comes from God, who has given us this at great cost, and desires, as he says to Nathaniel, only to give us greater things if we will not refuse giving up ourselves. I know that this morning, for the world at least, this personal relationship with God of honesty, of willingness, of hope, may appear somewhat weak or despised or not significant enough to make a difference in us or the world. I'll be honest that as you come to this table, there's no cold, hard cash that changes hands. There's no feats of impressive display. There's not even simply the commitment within ourselves to try harder or to do better next time. And yet as you look to Christ and how he perfectly models this relationship, this open-handed and obedient response to God, he has a strength and a power that's unrivaled by all of those around him. Even those within his life that laid the greatest claim to power, to wealth, to, to status, and to glory. And as Christ willingly received all things from the Father and offered back his whole life, he was able to live completely into his mission, no matter the distraction, the danger, the difficulty, and even his own suffering and death. And then he triumphed over them all. You came into worship this morning, not to get the leftover remains of some secondhand grace. You came to worship because you know and have experienced better. You came to worship at the source of life itself and are now directly in the presence of God Almighty. Receive that gift this morning. Allow this to be the time that you prepare your mind and your heart to become truly what they are and will be. Take a moment to receive the promise that God's will and work is to join you wholly into his life here and now. Pray for an openness to God's grace working in you, purifying you of the sin that clings to you and strengthening you in love as you receive everlasting life at this table. Shall we pray? Lord our God, we are grateful this morning that you have invited us into this new covenant that your son has made that has perfected the old one in place in Israel. We give you thanks, Lord, that the invitation of that covenant is to know you personally and fully in a way that transforms our lives to become more and more like you, to imitate the mindset and the likeness of your son. We ask, Lord, that as we are invited to come to this table, we might receive that gift here and now, not trying harder, not seeking to be better, but just allowing you to do that constant, that sure work that you do in our lives of helping us to relinquish our sin, to strive forward, to go what is ahead, to be found in you and to know you in the fullness of your power, your glory, your resurrection. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.